Good morning, fellowship. Hey, it's a good morning. We not only do we get to sing songs and learn from God's word together, we're going to get to celebrate with five individuals later in the service who are going to be baptized, follow Jesus in baptism. And I'm excited about that. It's going to be a wonderful morning, a wonderful celebration with them. Uh, by the way, we do have some folks that are still waiting to find a seat. Hopefully now that everybody is sitting, you can see there are some seats available. If you have some that are kind of near you, you can scooch in a little bit. That would be helpful. I was wondering when we'd get again to the place that we have to do the fellowship scooch. We're here. Well, Lloyd started the uh, new series last week, Ruth, subtitle, Ordinary Providence. Most people think of Ruth as a love story. It is that, but it's actually not the kind of love story that you might think of. Ruth is a love story about God's love for his people. Specifically, it's about the unseen ways God directs and governs our lives. Ways that are often confounding, but always purposeful. Always moving us closer and closer toward himself. Who in truth is love. Last week was overview, was introduction to the message, and today we're going to cover the first five verses. Uh, Lloyd talked about verse one. We'll pick it up from there and continue through verse five, but it's also a continuation of an introduction to the book. The themes that we're going to talk about today are themes that will pervade throughout our study. Lloyd unpacked our theme a little bit more, ordinary providence. Um, in its shortest form, Lloyd said, providence means God is in control of all things. I really like the way he said, that says easy, but lives hard. I think he's right. And in particular, the book of Ruth really explores the lives hard part of God's providence. Last week, Lloyd gave us a phrase that will absolutely be necessary to keep in mind as we study this book together. Uh, you might remember it. He said, there's more than meets the eye. And he had all of us say that phrase together with him. I'm going to ask you to do it uh, again. So let's all say that together. There's more than meets the eye. Really want you to be thinking about that as we study the book. There's more than meets the eye in the story. There's more than meets the eye in, in your life and my life as we lean into this idea that God actually is in control of all things in even our ordinary lives. The outline that we're going to walk through, we'll, we'll put this on the screen here in a moment. Uh, I encourage you actually to write this in your Ruth journal if you haven't already. By the way, if you did not get a, one of these copies, um, some are purple, some are black, feel free to grab one. Even right now, you can get up and get it or, or on, on the way out afterward. We want you to have this and bring your Bible, but what I love about these little books is it gives you plenty of space to take notes on the right-hand side, and then there's the text in our English Standard Version on the left-hand side. So, so don't be shy. Get up, grab one of those if you didn't get one, or get one for someone around you if they need one as well. And we're just going to be walking through this week by week, uh, a few verses at a time as we tend to do. And this can then be sort of your journal from the series when we get to the end of that. So the, um, the chapters will sort of outline like this. Chapter one, God's providence is hard. And sort of that key word that's the application word for us is weeping. Chapter two, God's providence is hard to see. Key word, 
working. And by the way, that's not us working, that's God working in unseen, sort of under the surface kind of ways. Chapter 3, God's providence works with your faith, keyword waiting. And chapter 4, God's providence brings our good and his glory, keyword worshiping. So the, those four keywords, weeping, working, waiting, worshiping, really a helpful way, just, just some handholds as you think about the book of Ruth and as we walk through it together and as we apply it to our own stories of life and loss and resurrection as we go through this study together. Well, I hate to tell you, but this morning's text is quite a downer. The story of Ruth starts low and quickly goes lower and lower. This morning, the good news is, is actually the lowest part of the book. Now, all of chapter one, you know, subtitle weeping, all of chapter one is hard and heavy, but even next week, there's just a glimmer of, of hope that starts to come into the story. But, but today is just sort of setting up this tragic series of events that opened the story of Ruth. So let's take a look at our text this morning. This is Ruth chapter 1. I'll, I'll reread verse 1, which Lloyd covered last week, and then go on verses 2 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. I can't easily think of a story in the Bible that starts lower than Ruth. I want to illustrate a couple things for you as we go through this. From the very first sentence, in the days when the judges ruled, you know, Lloyd covered this last week, I'll just remind you, that was not a good time in Israel's history. So there's your first down arrow right there. It's a clue. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. Okay, even lower now. It's not only a, a bad time to be an Israelite, but there's no food to eat. A man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, leaving the promised land for, for a, a nation that was traditionally the enemies of Israel. He and his wife and two sons. Now, look, look down to verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. There's more downward movement. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. Now, that, that's actually a positive. Some have made a big deal. It's like, well, they were Moabite wives. And uh, you're, you'll come to see this is part of God's provision. These wives were part of God's provision. So that's a good thing. That, that's a little bit of an upward trajectory. But then listen to the rest. They lived there about 10 years. Both Malon and Kilian died double so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. I mean, it's just like off the chart. Now, when we were talking about this message, you know, a couple of months ago, planning out the series of Ruth, we, we give these messages titles. And I know we don't put the titles on the screen. The only way you'd really know the titles of the messages is if you look on the web or, or you're listening on the podcast. 
But this one we titled A Decade of Loss. We thought about changing the title because it was such a bummer. But this is what it is, a decade of loss. And so the the two questions that I want to explore this morning related to loss. Number one, how should we think about loss in light of God's providence? Number two, what should we do with losses in our own lives? So we're going to use these two questions as a bit of an outline as we walk through the text. How do we think about loss in light of God's providence? That's a theological challenge for us. And then a personal applicational challenge. What should we do with the losses in our lives? Well, let's start with the first question here. How do we think about loss in light of God's providence? That's actually the question, the question the book of Ruth is addressing. If you analyze the plot of Ruth, which you know, m- many have done, you might categorize it as problem resolution. There are lots of stories that follow that same basic pattern. Problem resolution. I mean, think about how many stories you've read, how many movies you've watched, where early on somebody has a problem and the whole movie is about how that problem is going to get resolved. That's the flow of the story of Ruth. It's problem resolution. So what's the problem? Well, there's a surface-level problem, and then there's a deeper problem. Let's talk about the surface-level problem. Well, the, the obvious problem in the book of Ruth is the death and emptiness in Naomi's life resulting from the loss of her husband and son. It should, should actually be sons. I didn't catch that in the first service, so let me just add it. That's the presenting problem. We just read about that in the first five verses of Ruth. But there's a deeper problem going on, and it's this. If God really is in control of all things i.e. providence, what do we do with the fact that there's so much loss? That's the theological problem that this book is examining. Now, as we wade into this, one of the first things we need to understand is exactly how tragic Naomi's losses were. I mean, they sound terrible even to our ears, but they would have sound worse It would have sounded worse to the ears of a Hebrew. And that's because in the Old Testament, Hebrew people were a patriarchal, tribal society. Let me explain what that means. Patriarchal, tribal society. It meant that everything in their society revolved around the family unit. Not just the immediate family of, you know, mom, dad, and kids, but but the extended family. So you had a, a patriarch. The patriarch would have been the oldest living male of that household. He would live there with his wife, the wife of the patriarch, their children. Now, if they were unmarried children, they would all be a part of that household. If they were married children, they would be a part of the household if they were males. So when your male, your son got married, he would bring his wife into your household and you'd live on the family compound and have grandkids and all of that. And they'd all be together living off the land, working the land, sharing in the produce of the land. But if you had a daughter, your daughter grew up, you married her into a different household. So she would leave your household and join with another household. And all their society revolved around this. You know, think about this for a minute. The patriarch was responsible for the economic well-being of the home. In a much more profound literal way than what you and I think of when you know the, the head of the household or the, you know, the person that's, that's providing for the home. The patriarch also enforced the law. The law, not, not just the home rules, but 
the law, the law of Moses. The patriarch's responsibility was to enforce the law. Patriarch had the responsibility to care for members of the family who became marginalized, either through poverty or, you know, someone went off to war and died, and then, you know, now the wife is left, and et cetera. The patriarch had responsibility to provide for the marginalized of the family unit. Think about how the, this is different, how different this is from what we're accustomed to. In our culture, the state creates economic opportunity. The state enforces the law. The state cares for the marginalized, for the most part. And the family is much more peripheral, at least in terms of the government and economy. But it was not this way in you know, the ancient Near East. Let me show you a diagram that illustrates this. This is from a really good book by Sandra Richter called The Epic of Eden that helps you understand the Old Testament as you read the Bible. In this system, an individual would understand their identity first through the lens of their patriarch's household, then their clan, then their tribe, and finally their nation. So if I was living back then, I would say, I am Rob, I am the son of Robert, I belong to the clan of such and such, of the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or whatever my tribal association was, of the nation of Israel. Notice this little phrase. This is actually really helpful, this phrase right here, the, the Beit Ab. Um, Beit is Hebrew for house. Ab is Hebrew for father. So this was the father's house. This is what they called the, the basic uh, family unit. So house of the father. By the way, Lloyd shared last week, Bethlehem means house of bread. Same, same first word, Beit, or you know, sometimes spelled B-E-T-H, and then lechem, lechem is bread. So Beit, lechem, Bethlehem, Beit, Ab, house of the father, house of bread, house of the father. If you were a child or a woman in this culture, you were completely dependent on the Beit Ab, that family unit, particularly the patriarch, for your provision and your protection. So the marginalized in this society were any persons who fell outside of a Beit Ab, there was no government safety nets. There was no welfare program. There, there was no, um, um, you know, food stamps and other things. So for someone who found themselves in the situation where they were, they were broken off from a family unit, their only hope for salvation would be for someone from their clan to redeem them. And that meant to, to bring them back in to, to, to their bait ob, you know, to a new bait ob. So they could be cared for and provided for and protected. By the way, this is why the Bible makes such a big deal about caring, caring for orphans and widows and showing hospitality to the alien. What do those three groups of people have in common? They're all outside of the family unit. They're all outside of a, of a Beit Ab. And there was no provision other than what God's law would teach. And so Naomi, when she left Bethlehem, she's the wife of the patriarch. She's in the center of his care, in the center of his protection. They go to Moab because there's no food in Israel. And then Elimelech, the patriarch, dies. And Naomi was immediately in trouble. But the good news is she had two grown sons. And so those sons could sort of take on the responsibility to care and provide for the, the clan, that, or not the clan, but the, the household. You know? So the oldest son would then become the new patriarch. Well, guess what? He died. And so then the younger son will become the new patriarch. Well, guess what? He died. And so Naomi was immediately outside the provisions and protections of the society. She's too old to remarry. 
no sons to provide for her, no options to provide for herself in that place and time, she was suddenly among the most vulnerable people in the world. Not only that, but from the perspective of the Hebrew who would be hearing this story, you know, as it was, it was told and told and told, Elimelech's family is on the brink of extinction. And so what would be going through their mind is, is that family is about to go away and there is no greater tragedy in Israel than for a family to cease to exist. So the tension between Naomi's tragic loss and God's providence is even deeper than we know when you're hearing this through the, the ears of the original hearers. Now, the tension gets even greater when you consider how the Hebrew people thought about God in terms of his character and his disposition toward them. By the way, if you think about it, there's no tension between tragedy and providence unless you believe God is love. If you believe God doesn't care, if you believe that, you know, God's actually deep down kind of mean or, or just like distant, there's no tension when tragedy comes into your life in terms of how you think about God. Could this be from God? No, so this, there's this tension because of what we believe about God. Well, even more so for the Hebrews. The Hebrew people based their understanding of God on a single word for the most part. It, it's a very important word to know. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. You see it on the screen, how it's written in Hebrew and how it might be pronounced in English. Here's what it means. Steadfast love or affection rooted in a committed relationship. It's sometimes translated loyal love, faithfulness, unfailing kindness, devotion. Sometimes it's just translated love. So you know in the New Testament we talk about the Greek word agape. You know that's a, that's a very familiar word. It's, it's love but it's unselfish commitment, faithful love. This is in a way the Hebrew equivalent of agape. It has this idea of God loves to be loyal. God loves to be faithful. He's the God of the covenant. And if you understand this as a Hebrew, you start to realize that chesed is such an integral part of God's character that he can't violate it. Where did they get this idea of God from? All the cultures surrounding them were polytheistic. And so, for polytheistic cultures, you know, think about the, the, the stories they told about their gods. They didn't have any tension between tragedy in the world and, and what they believed about God because they actually believed their gods were selfish and petulant and would have fights with each other. And the, the result of that, the selfishness and the fighting between the gods is the tragedies that they experienced on this earth. So there was no tension for them between you know, providence and tragedy. But for the Hebrew people, God is Hesed. Well, how do they know God is Hesed? He told them. This is God's self-revelation to, to Moses. This is a massively important part of the, the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before him. You know, you know Moses told God, I want to see you. And, and God passed before Moses, you know, shielded Moses' eyes from his glory. And the Lord proclaimed about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in Hesed, there it is, steadfast love, that's Hesed. And faithfulness, keeping Hesed. 
for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, God revealed himself to the Hebrew people and said, this is who I am. I am only faithful. I am only steadfast. I am only good. And the Hebrew people believed him. Now, if this is your understanding of God, the problem the story of Ruth presents is clear. The Hebrew people would have understood Naomi's tragedy as a challenge to Hesed. They would have heard these first five verses read and they would have been like, how's God going to fix this? You know, how's God going to prove his loyal love once again? In other words, the circumstances beg the questions. Is God who he says? Will he do what he said he'll do? Will he prove his chesed loyal love for this family and this woman? And even deeper questions, why would God bring this into her in the first place? Well, maybe the tragedy was outside of God's will. Or, or maybe this was punishment for some sin. See, all these questions you start asking yourself. They're the same types of questions we ask ourselves when tragedy comes into our lives. The book of Ruth goes there. And we're going to go there with it. So how should we think about loss in light of providence? Well, let's let the text answer this as we walk through the story together. We're only in week two. We've got a lot of good stuff to get to. Because here's what I believe, that this is the living word of God for us today. That God has providentially chosen us to be in this book at this time. Me, you, all, every single one of us. Let's turn our attention to the second question this morning, and this is where we're going to move towards some application. What should we do with our losses? So the first question, how do we think about this, this idea of providence and loss might somehow go together in God's economy? The second question, well, what do we, how do we live in light of that? In other words, what do we do with our loss? The tragedies in our own lives that are very real. Because this is a little bit of a part two of Lloyd's introductory message last week, I want to bring back on the screen the two lessons Lloyd shared from last week's Sermon number one, no one gets through life without weeping. Number two, the providence of God that crushes us is the providence that gives us life. I want to spend a bit more time here because these are hard truths. The first one just seems unfair. Can you go there with me? No one gets through this life without weeping. If that's true, God, why? Why would you allow life to be this way? Worse yet, if you are in control of all things, does that mean you designed life to be this way? No one gets through this life without weeping. 
If number one seems unfair, number two seems almost impossible to believe. The providence of God that crushes us is the providence that gives us life. Am I to believe that the losses in my life are as much from God's hand as the blessings? Maybe some of us who've not had the deepest wounds in the room might say, okay. But if you've been stricken at some point in your life to the place where you can't breathe, can you say that? I don't want us to take this lightly. If you find yourself this morning struggling to believe this, maybe even fighting against it. It's only because the losses in your life are real and you have enough faith in God to believe he's for you. And I don't want you to let go of either of those two things. The losses in your life are real. There is tragedy and brokenness and wrongness in your story and mine. And God is for you. Every page of the scripture shouts it. So what do we do? The easy answer is to, to loosen our, our understanding of providence just a little. It's like, okay, fine. God controls all the things that are, that are good, but the things that are evil, you know, he, he, he allows but doesn't control Maybe some truth there, but I'm telling you guys, as I read the Bible, and Lloyd and I have talked about this a lot, the Bible just doesn't let us off quite that easy. And I know what I'm saying is significant. So what do we do with loss? Well, again, we're not going to resolve this this morning for sure, but, but I, I want to give us a couple things that we can do with our very real losses, you know, the, the ordinary live kind of losses that you and I are all carrying around. The first thing we can do is to acknowledge them. In other words, no sense in pretending they're not there or that they don't matter. Start by acknowledging what is painful and broken. Start by acknowledging the things that don't match God's design of wholeness Shalom, another very important Old Testament word we've talked about before. It means peace, but it really means everything together in, in right, whole form. Acknowledge what's broken. A acknowledge the broken shalom in your own life, in your story. Uh, we're we're going to see Naomi do this exact same thing later in chapter 1. She's going to name her loss. She's not going to hold back. She's going to just express all of the brokenness that's in her. This morning, I want to give us a small chance to do that. When we were planning this service, you know, six weeks ago or so, we thought to ourselves, you know, what, what if we gave everybody in the room and watching online an opportunity to name some of the loss in their own life? And what if we could all see it? Not with names, of course, but, but somehow put it on the screen so that we can get a sense of it together, so that we can be reminded we're not alone. And so we're going to do that. On the screen's a QR code. 
And I want to invite you, literally right now, everybody, you know, everybody, it's your choice, you don't, you don't have to do this, but I want to encourage you, invite you to do this. Pull out your phone, scan this QR code, and if the QR code's not working or you, you don't want to do it that way, go, go to the website, slido.com, and then punch in that code that you see. And if you're, if you're at home, jump in this with us. What you're going to find when you get there, it's just going to say, name your loss, and then there's going to be a blank for you to type in a word, a phrase, a loss that you've experienced, a loss that you are experienced, experiencing. Just think about what is it in my life that's not right? What is it in my life that's broken? What, what are the circumstances in my life that don't represent the wholeness that God intended for his creation? And while you're doing this, just go ahead and start populating those right now, and in a few minutes we'll get to look at them together. But, but, but let me just tell you, leave, leave this on the screen for another minute. Let me just tell you why we're doing this. Okay, why are we doing this? Because we don't just want to know God's word, we want to live it. We want to embody it. And so here's an opportunity for us, a people of God, thousands of years removed from Ruth, to identify, at least in part, with the people of God in the book of Ruth, naming what is broken the same way they did in hopes of finding in this story healing for our lives too. And so we're going to put on the screen just some of these losses when they come in and, and I just invite you to, to read these as they populate on the screen. The, the ones that are in larger letters are ones that have been mentioned more often. These words are our losses. These words represent places in our lives that are broken and not whole. These things are painful and they're real. And I want to lead us in one more thing this morning. I, I want us to do one more thing with our losses this morning. By God's providence, I, I came across something in a book I was reading this past week that immediately made me think of Naomi's story and, and, and this question, you know, you know, what should we do with the losses in our lives? I was reading a book called The God of the Garden by Andrew Peterson. Some, many of you know who he is. He's a Christian singer-songwriter, lives here in the Nashville area. Some of you know Andrew and He's also written some books. He's written some fiction books. He's written some nonfiction books. And The God of the Garden is kind of his memoirs, but he's, he's telling it from the, the perspective of, of growing things and trees. And It's pretty neat how he does it. He described in one chapter a long season in his life where he was really struggling emotionally and spiritually. And the way he described it was like a rainstorm that wouldn't stop. No matter how much he prayed for God to end it, it wouldn't end. Until finally he started getting the feeling that God was deliberately doing this to him, sending rain unrelentingly in his life. So he did what songwriters do. He wrote a song. Here's an excerpt that he wrote in his rainstorm. 
I tried to be brave, but I hid in the dark. I sat in that cave and I prayed for a spark to light up the pain that remained in my heart and the rain kept falling. There's a woman at home. She's praying for light. My children are there and they love me in spite of the shadow I know that they see in my eyes and the rain keeps falling. He got to a certain place in the song and he didn't know how to finish it so it went on the shelf. And then in God's providence, while he was still in the middle of his rainstorm, he came across a little poem by Lucy Shaw. Lucy Shaw is a Christian author and poet. Poem was called Forecasts. I want you to see it. We'll put it on the screen. Planting seeds inevitably changes my feelings about rain. Thanks to these words, Andrew knew how to finish the song. And he wrote this. My daughter and I put the seeds in the dirt. And every day now we've been watching the earth for a sign that this death will give way to a birth. And the rain keeps falling. Down on the soil where the sorrow is laid, and the secret of life is igniting the grave. And I'm dying to live, but I'm learning to wait. And the rain is falling. This morning we're going to plant some seeds. Literal and spiritual. Up until right now, I've been holding these seeds in my pocket, but what's required of them to grow is for me to acknowledge their purpose. These seeds are meant for beauty. But what must first happen for them is to be put in the ground. I've got a planter with some soil over here, and, and, and I'm going to dig into the soil, and I'm going to plant these seeds seeds in the soil. What's interesting about planting seeds is what actually happens is you bury them. It's a, a little funeral. You put dirt over the top and you place the seeds where there's no light and no air. And then the next thing you do is you water them. Now, if these seeds are our losses and we water them with our tears. And then we wait. To plant a seed is to entrust it to God. I can no more make these seeds live than I can bring anything else to life. But the moment they're buried something invisible starts happening. The losses in our lives are like seeds that we plant in the earth and water with tears. But what is invisible to us is beautiful to God. And so if you were to come up here after the service and look in this box, you'd say, oh, it's just a, a bunch of dirt. 
No, it's not. Do you remember the phrase we said together earlier? I want to say it again. You remember it? There's more than meets the eye. Over the next couple of months as we study this book, we'll keep watching this box. During the week, we'll tend to it. We'll make sure it gets the sun. And we'll bring it back on this stage every week and we'll just keep watching. I want to give you an invitation to life this morning, which is our application. And you're literally going to have an opportunity to plant some seeds. Here's the invitation to life. Plant some seeds this week. You'll get some when you leave. You'll get one of these little seed packets on your way out this morning. Start watching and waiting for God to grow them into something beautiful. Put them in a planter. Put them in a pot. Put them somewhere in your home. Water them. Put them by a window. When it gets warmer out and there's no more danger of frost, maybe plant them in your garden. This is going to be happening while we walk through this book together. We, we've got 13 weeks. Let's see what God does with the seeds of our loss.